Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. First of all, I'd like to say sorry there wasn't an episode last week. I am in the thick of graduate applications, and I actually took the GRE this past weekend, so I just wanted to spend the week focusing on that. But I already know I don't need to explain myself. Just a little disclaimer. Now, today's episode, where do I even begin, was an honor. Truly, when I emailed this person, I did not expect a response. Um, If you maybe aren't, you know, very well versed in the archaeology community and the anthropology community, you know, you don't have ties to UCSB. This name, Brian Fagan, probably doesn't mean anything. Um, (laughs) And it's hard to describe the impact that he has had. I think this episode will kind of hopefully illuminate that but really what dr fagan has had like such a monumental impact in the anthropology archaeology community is that he writes books for the general public and that isn't to say that someone who's familiar with anthropology archaeology shouldn't read them they're just as fascinating but they're not written in this the the traditional academic style so that only a professional could understand it. It's written in a manner in which anyone, even with a limited understanding of archaeology, can read it. And I think it's really powerful. It's something I'm trying to do here with the podcast. And, you know, he's kind of like the original science communicator. 
The other thing that he has uh, a legacy for, particularly at UCSB, and we talk about this with former guest Andrew Kinkella, um, is that he was such an engaging lecturer. He was really a storyteller, and he really, even in big lecture halls, took the time to try and engage with each of his students. And, you know, I think like he he does mention, you know, that he would require all of them to do verbal oral presentations in class. And I think while, you know, some of his methods may not be ideal for teaching today, you have to understand he was teaching at UCSB in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. UCSB only opened up in 63, I think we determined in the episode. And he was hired in 67. So he was really fundamental in shaping kind of like the legacy of anthropology at UCSB, which is really cool. And honestly, truly, oh, I should say this episode was recorded in person. It's the only episode thus far that has been recorded in person. And I think it probably will only be will be the only one. Um, it just works better for people's schedules to recorded virtually even if we're both in Santa Barbara as well as obviously being safe for COVID's sake uh, which brings me to the next point we did record this episode outside I 100% should have got two microphones but I didn't so it's almost like a fun I like it I think the outside audio is kind of cool because it's a really different vibe than a normal podcast you really feel like you're just listening in on Dr. Fagan and I's conversation, which I think is really fun. But, you know, also, like, I didn't feel comfortable doing it inside. He is higher risk for COVID. So I just felt like doing it outside on campus would just be the best um, best way to do it in person, but also, you know, assure that it was safe. And really, this whole conversation was just, was just so, so delightful and so personal. He's so kind and he's a real, you know, he's real charmer, real quick-witted, and it was just a pleasure to get to talk with him and learn from him. Um, I also just want to say, like, we we briefly touch on um, my personal life, uh, like, as in my, my relationships, and I just want to clarify that I would not be sharing that if I was not comfortable, so don't feel weird at all I would not have answered his question nor would I have included it in the podcast if I wasn't comfortable sharing um it's just that I had the same car as someone that I dated it's nothing like salacious tease anything more I think I'm just gonna let you guys listen to the episode because truly like it's a good one and by the end you're just gonna very calming episode very peaceful maybe it's his British accent but just the way he talks I just felt very calm and relaxed afterwards anyway Let's get into the episode with Dr. Brian Fagan. I know we have um, a lot of animals. Uh, yeah. We have three cats, one of whom is a Maine Coon, who is marvelous. Two males and a female. We have seven box turtles. We have nine beehives we used to have one so we swim in honey when it's being collected um and we have two goldfish which sit on the table in the kitchen and they are really kind of um emotional support for our 
small tabby cat. He sits, she sits with him. <laughs> is it? Uh, is it? She's trying to eat them, or? She's well, I think <laughs> there would be ambitions in that yeah, direction, but uh-huh. we have them in double jars. No, she just likes to yes. sit with them. They, they seem to like her. She is my emotional support animal. You need it. Yes. My dog. Um, we can't have a dog. The cats will not allow it. My wife would love to have one. We almost got chickens, but it's just too much work. We are owned by our animals. Yeah. And then it's like on the days that you want to go out of town or whatever, then we it's... We have to make arrangements. Yes. Or well, my daughter, fortunately, is lives at home and is around. Um, <laughs> no, I'm. we have all these beasts and I'm considered one of the beasts. There we are. Yes. And what was your wife's name again? I forgot. Les- Leslie. L-E-S-L-E-Y. So She's half Chinese. So to begin our interview, I like to just start chronologically because I think it's a good idea just to give people a sense of who you are, where you're from. I hope your interviews are good conversations because to me, a good interview is a conversation. Yes, I completely agree. Good. But I do think it's important to kind of set the scene and also give people a bit of background where you're from. We have, I would say, our listeners are about half general public, some friends, some family, some people that have just picked up on the podcast, like uh, the assistant at my chiropractor's office. She's a dedicated listener. And then I would say the other half is probably, you know, professionals, whether it's people here at UCSB or undergrads that are, you know, in, in the field. So I think we'll have to strike that perfect balance. Of Very successful, I gather you are. I've heard rumors. Yes. You know, I like to think that I was lucky to come in knowing what I wanted to study. And it allowed me to hit the ground running in a way and jump right in from freshman year. I went into the anthropology counselor's office freshman year and said, okay, what can I do to achieve my goals? What can I, you know, starting freshman year, what can I be doing? That is most unusual. It is, but, you know, it comes with also the, you know so much what you want to do, and, you know, we don't have a forensics real program here other than uh, Professor Curran, which is amazing. I started, you know, working with her last year, but I don't get to have necessarily, like, exactly what I want, so in a way, it feels like I'm kind of waiting for grad school for that, but at the same time, I'm very happy that I have gotten all the opportunities It is a very good thing, actually, Gabby, because in means that you stand on your feet and you have developed a a basis to judge people because one of the most important things about being a professor or an academic is to be able to judge people it really is how did you find that in your own teaching experiences (laughs) oh I arrived here in 1967 and we just lost Lewis Binford and James Dietz, who, of course, are, were legends. Uh, Dietz was the most brilliant lecturer I've ever heard. I mean, he was amazing. Um, he had a cult following. And I arrived and was informed that I was to teach the introductory archaeology course, Anthro 3. I hadn't a clue what to do. And there were 300 people. I was going to say, it's always a big class. It is a big class, it slows. And I found there there was one textbook uh, which I thought was dull and a little book by James Dietz which was really good. And I started and kind of learnt how to do it the hard way. 
And the first thing I learned is to look students in the eye and make judgments and don't let people get away with anything. I think that's very smart. Do you remember having Andrew Kinkella in class? Interesting one. Andrew Kinkella. No, but I know of him very yes, well. He's we a nice had, man. Yes, we had him on the podcast, and he had only amazing things to say about you know being in your classes. So you have a cult following as well. Um, well, I have a high bullshit level. Let's put it that way. <laughs> as do no, I. <laughs> no, well, yes. But no, the, the important thing about teaching any class like that is to get people excited. Not necessarily about the subject. I have no desire to take a class of freshmen and persuade them to become archaeologists. Quite the contrary. But I do want them to be excited about learning and thinking for themselves. So a lot of my work was doing that. And when I taught upper division, I was absolutely ruthless the first day. And my enrollment went like this. And then I got about 15, 20 students, and then we could really get to work. And I did things which are not very fashionable, like insisting that all work for the course be done orally. So you had to make a a nine-minute presentation without notes. Yes. Plus or minus 30 seconds on a subject which you chose with my advice if needed revolving about what we were talking about and I had to do that in the middle of the quarter in the end it's far more work than a paper and boy the results were dramatic Some of the, I had one guy who had a stutter who lost it mm, no yeah. it was very special because I really got to know the students we were all on a first name basis and some of them still liked me occasionally although the biggest frustration of being a professor you get all these nice people and they vanish yes every four years every when I was here for what God, 36 years teaching and I had a total of five graduate students because I was very concerned about the overproduction of PhDs which is still a problem of far too many number yes. one and number two I found that the subject matter was getting narrower and narrower and narrower and more and more it was you were teaching people your specialty which got ever narrower I had five students, one is just about to retire from Rice, one retired from McGill in Canada, the other two I flunked out, which is almost unheard of. Now, if somebody had come in like you who really wanted this, I'd have sat him down and said, look, and I said, look, our agreement is this, I don't think you're going to make it, I'll buy you a cup of coffee or a drink, but I'm going to tell you, and you better accept it as my best judgment, and it worked. I think that's really important. I think there isn't enough you can be honest without being cruel it's exactly. it's very not maybe not easy but there is there is a way to do that and i think that rather than selling students like a dream or a perfect world where you're always going to get hired you'll always have opportunities know you have to work for what you want and sometimes that means redirecting for example i'm sure the phd students that you ended up you know turning away have maybe found some other passion or found something else One of them is a casting director in New York. A what? Casting director. Oh, that's cool. And another one, the other one, I don't know what they're doing. But no, uh, that's so true. Um, And there are all sorts of opportunities out there. The question is identifying them. The other secret of life is to meet as many people as possible. That is huge. Mm -hmm. Because then you really do meet people. 
Yes. The podcast has been incredible for that. I was going to say, I was about to yes. say that I really admire you for doing it because that is one of the best ways of meeting people you can imagine. And where you get a podcaster who you get to know who is good at something and you can say to them, what do you recommend I do if I want to follow in your path? And he mm -hmm. or she hopefully will say, oh my God, try this, try that. Yes. I got all the jobs in my life by sheer chance. Uh, thus, the opportunities I've had thus far, I feel, have been by chance and hard work. I got the one here by, um, well, we were North Hall when I started. Oh. It was a village, this place, when I started. Yeah. Well, because UCSB only opened in the 50s? 30? Top of my head. Because it was after... 63, okay, I think. Okay, yeah, because we had the... the um, 53. The base on campus, at Campus Point, used to be a, a base for... It still was. There's yeah. still some okay. building, a few buildings around. Yeah. No, the big expansion came here in the 80s. Okay. But I know it was a very small town, a village. Mm -hmm. This campus was... It had some very good people, but you knew everybody. Yes. And there was a sense of identity. It really only got big in the 80s. 70s and 80s um, and now it's just another UC campus it's a good one but yes. it is my philosophy in retirement is you leave and that's it yep and I think that's a great idea well it is because there are all sorts of other things too I've got yep. a far more interesting life now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I'm really excited to talk to you about some of your hobbies because I think that's one of the things on the podcast that I think is fascinating is you know what is the person besides their research their research is oh fascinating, absolutely you can read their research yes but finding out, you know, what what gets you out of bed in the morning is always really interesting. I'm curious what your first impressions were when you came on campus in '67. Um, correct, you were hired. Yeah. And uh, my moving. first impression was how friendly everybody was. And I hate to say this, and this isn't sexist, how beautiful the women were. I'd been living in tropical Africa in yeah. the Midwest for seven years. Um, anyway, no, people were very friendly here, and that was good. And the department was welcoming um, in its way. Mm -hmm. I've always had support from the department, even if they disagree with me. Um, I'm grateful to this place, but I retired and I didn't exist, which is fine. I mean, I'm gone. It was a chapter in my life. And every morning I face east and say, God bless the university's health care and retirement program. That's great. Which are fabulous. Yes, no, the UC really looks after the employees, which is good. That's wonderful. Um, no, and I bought a house here when I first got here <laughs> for $43,000. In Santa Barbara, Galita? In Montecito, my oh. dear. Wow, even... No, 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 that was in Santa Barbara. I now live in Montecito wow. by 20 yards in the slums. The slums of Montecito. Oh, when I moved in, I bought a house, three quarts of an acre, my wife and I. We paid $235,000 for three quarters of an acre on the house, which agreed to even work. Uh, now, um, we don't know really what the house is worth, but it's well over a million. Oh, uh, I'm sure. Well and up over the street is three to four million. Yeah, anything in Santa Barbara is pretty much over a million. Yep. Any house. Were there any shocks coming from, well, originally you were born in England and then you worked a lot in Africa, coming to California and coming to the States? Surprisingly few. Um, the least shock was the climate, because in Africa the climate was 
hotter than this, but it was much the same. Uh, I had lived in societies where there were mainly blacks, and I found it hard to come to a society that was predominantly white. It took, it took a little getting used to. Um, it's an interesting question. Educational system at Cambridge is far better, which is where I went, because the classes are small. My average undergraduate class, except for the first year, was two people. You get to know people. Wow. Nobody took Stone Age archaeology. But anyway, it was a small major, which is why I was let in to take it, because it was said to be easy, which it actually was quite easy. But I um, found this system very impersonal. I found large classes very hard to deal with. I always have and always will, because ultimately I'm at my best interacting one-on-one or one-on-four. I was, I think, got a reputation for being strict and fair, which is what I wanted. But and I got to know, uh, know a lot of undergraduates and graduates. You know, but I. Um, you have a lasting reputation for even in your larger classes, allowing for time for student discussion and individual, you know, um, questions. Was that part of you know your experience in Cambridge, wanting to incorporate that into? A more, it's mm-hmm. less common here, for, especially in those big classes. Well, yeah, Cambridge was much more intimate. You knew everybody, mm-hmm. and they knew you. And if they felt you should become an archaeologist, you were encouraged in practical ways, not just told to go to a graduate school. Um, but it wasn't nearly as close as. It was for some other people because my the archaeologists at Cambridge were a funny lot. The, the professor Graham Clark, who was very famous, he was an ecologist, was one of the most forbidding people you could imagine. Carter, because he was chronically shy. I ended up many years later writing his biography, which was an interesting experience, yeah. Yeah. very interesting, and I discovered the whole other side of him. He was a very nice man. Um, How did you get that opportunity? He died, and they held a memorial conference in at the British Academy in London, which is a kind of equivalent to National Academy of Sciences for the Humanities. And I was in England, and they had a memorial service conference for him, and I managed to finagle an invitation to go to it because I was in England at the time. And at the end of it, we were having a drink. And a guy who was a professor there called John Cones came up to me and said, I'm one of his executors, would you write his biography? And I said, hello. And I did. Uh, which was extremely interesting and difficult, but it was different. And it gave you a new perspective on him, I know. I oh, read, a very new yeah. one, as a human being. Mm-hmm. And on just how important he was. Um, and how out of touch you became eventually. Well, let me see. What should we talk about next? Oh, Burkitt at Cambridge. You said he had quite an influence on you and his teachings as well. You really enjoyed his lectures. Who? Miles Burkitt? Yes. Miles Burkitt, who's been dead for, God, at least half a century, was a funny guy. He was, he inherited money with a capital M in London, in England, which in those days was uh, a sign that you were a chap. 
you know, one of the, one of those people, you know, elite in a way. And he spent the years before World War One. I should mention that my parents both saw Queen Victoria. They did. That's. So you're talking, they had me late in life. I was adopted late in life. And he worked in the French caves with Henri Broye, who was the absolute legend, by acetylene lamp. I mean, that kind of uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't take pictures of the cave paintings, so they had to copy them all down to bring exactly. them back to even Which get any he did some of, and he had these fabulous slides. But his biggest achievement, he was about as up-to-date as a piece of string, but he could tell stories, and he told stories about people. So people who were legends in their days, like... Um, I can't tell if people you would know. Or oh, like, for example, Flinders Petrie, the Egyptologist, just came alive. Yeah. And when I was in my second year, undergraduates only do three years there, which is very civilized. Um, the Undergraduate Archaeological Society asked him to talk about, he just retired, and there'd been no fuss. Forty years of archaeology at Cambridge. And every time he lectured, he wore one of those English three-piece suits that you can stand up in. Yes. And a French beret. And he walked in, leant in front of the backboard, and started his lecture by the words, Well now, which is what he always started with. And he spent an hour and a half telling us scandalous stories about the department. And it was, it was never vicious, it was always hilariously funny how Arthur Evans was sent off to London with a pig in his cage, <laughs> carriage in the, in the train, um, things like that. And he ended up by saying, well, at this point, Graham Clark came to the department and I'm going to shut up. And he did. It was lovely. Because you really got a sense of... What was a pig when there really were very few archaeologists? Mm-hmm. When I first worked in Africa, there were nine archaeologists between Cape Town and Cairo. Nine. That's talk about incredible. isolation. Yeah. Now there are over a hundred in South Africa alone. Yeah. Different world. Well, I'm curious. You were in Africa during a very interesting time in the world. You know, when colonial territories were becoming nations, and there was a lot of violence and upheaval. Did you witness any of that, or was it more of a background to, you know, the incredible work you were doing? I know that's probably what you were focused on. It was a background, Mm -hmm. but it was one that always intruded on you in a number of ways. One uh, was the influence of colonial government. Yes. And don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. Colonial government in what is now Zambia, which is northern Rhodesia, was very understaffed and I met one district commissioner who had charge of a district of Zambia, central Zambia, which was as large as Rhode Island and he governed it for 35 years with one assistant, a European, and six African policemen. Hmm. It was just the authority, you know. I mean, you knew there were violence as there would be. And that system 
worked in a way very well. It was racist, but as a system, it held a lot of people back, but it helped a lot of others. And that I saw the twilight of that. And some of the colonial administrators were pompous idiots. Others were really committed to the people. I have a friend who, I still have a friend who was now nearly 80, and he was one of them. And some of the stories they told about what they had to deal with were just unreal. And so that was one side. But I was encouraged very strongly by my boss, who was at the Livingston Museum. It was a guy called Desmond Clark, who was in his way, although he's much less, much more self-effacing, was as good, if not better, than Lewis Leakey. I mean, he, he, was, he was a total fanatic. And I worked for him for four years before he left to go to Berkeley. And my God, I learned from him. And when I got there, he said, look, we've just got some money. I want you to go and study the Iron Age cultures of southern Zambia. That is the farming cultures, which he, by one radiocarbon date, and this was the first ever done, had shown had been there at least 2,000 years. He said, go up 100 miles north and look around. I found a village mound, a quarter of a mile long and 12 foot deep. And that was my PhD dissertation. But much more than that, he said, look, you're digging this stuff up. People need, to, there are about six people who need to know this academically. But a lot of people out here are interested in their past because it's their identity. Yeah. And from there, thanks to his encouragement, I did quite a lot of digging and running around. I became a critical element, and I can say this without blowing my trumpet, in the emergence of multidisciplinary African history, which today is really flourishing. Um, and I wrote a couple of things, and I had a friend who was an African historian in London who started the Journal of African History, and I came over to this country with a pretty lengthy publication list, and um, was regarded as the bright young thing of African archaeology. I mean, I was really hot. And um, I also learned that one of the job things in the job was to inform people about it. And when I was on leave a couple of times, and while I was writing my PhD, I had raised some money out of the British Academy. They gave small grants for overseas work. And I met the director of the British Academy, who was a, a famous archaeologist, whose name was Mortimer Wheeler. Have you heard of him? I have. One of, he and Leakey, uh, I mustn't say it, were the biggest bastards you ever met. They were both difficult, had huge egos, unlike Desmond Clark, who was a gentleman. And for some reason, I got on very well with both of them. Were they both British as well? Of course. My dear madam. Anyhow, um, Morton Wheeler used to take me out to lunch at the Athenaeum Club. And the Athenaeum Club is definitely where chaps are to be seen. And the only person I know of who is a member is, that, is Colin Renfrew, the archaeologist. Do you know him? I'm not familiar with him. He's a European archaeologist who is very political. Anyhow, um, 
he took me out to lunch and I said, well, look, I think I'm going to give up archaeology um, because I think I'm, which is true, a very good second-rate excavator and I think I should do something else. I haven't got the patience. And I was expecting a storm and he filled my claret glass. He liked drinking and said, no, Brian, I want you to write for the general public. And here's why I'm here. And that literally started me. And that, when I came here, they, I think, were thinking I was going to be an Africanist, but that would have meant six months out of every third year away from here. And I'm sorry, I don't live my life that way. Yes. And I decided to become a journalist, first start specializing in communicating with a wider audience, which I soon discovered had two aspects. One was uh, students and the other was the general unwashed. And with both, I had luck. Is this boring? No, this, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so intrigued. And it had two facets. The first one was when I told you about the lack of books. Yes. And about three weeks after I got here, a publisher's editor from Little Brown, who were a very well-known publishing house, who at that time published textbooks, came into my office, and those were the days when editors traveled. Now they're flooded with books. Mm-hmm. And we talked for a while, and I said, boy, you've got no textbooks. He looked at me and said, why one? Why, I said. He said, because I think you can do it. And it took five years, but I wrote a book called In the Beginning, which is a method and theory textbook, which is still around. Next year is its 50th year of publication. 14 editions. No, and... That started me off because we captured overnight 75% of the published introductory archaeology market. Um, and from there I wrote a, a free history of humankind, people of the earth, and then I wrote various other ones. I've now got nine, two of which are coming out this year. This has been something I really didn't want to do for the rest of my life. But every four years I have to edit the damn things. So anyhow, now, and I'm not getting younger, I'm 85. Um, About eight years ago I started working with a very nice English lady who you would adore, she's really smart, um, called Nadia Durrani, who is part Afghan, part Pakistani and part English. Uh, She's married to an architect in London and she's edited magazines and has a PhD in the archaeology of Yemen, which is pretty obscure, and is a superb writer. And she's just started an online magazine, actually, on archaeology, called Past Worlds. And I can put her in touch with you if you like. Yeah. She's a very she nice one. That's great. Yeah. She does now call for all my books for a number of reasons. One, I really wanted to encourage someone to do what I do when I'm gone. And two, I get huge intellectual stimulation because she has very good experience with a lot of things I have no knowledge of, one of which is um, feminism, sex, education, you know, that all these sex roles uh, and human diversity. She's extremely good on that stuff. 
Oh, in, oh, yes, indeed, and from England. I mean, she knows all the English gossip, which is very useful. But she is superb and can also write. And we edit seamlessly. So it's been a huge relief, and I get a lot of... We, we email probably once or twice a week, you know. That. So that's been huge. Um, but anyway, that was how that started, and been part of my life now for nearly half a year, for half 50 years. And the publisher tells me, you've gone through three different publishers, that books aren't going to go away. So one has the issue of the long-term life. Why? Because a lot of people use them, not because there's any money in them, there isn't, but they're used, and they get the word out. And then, the other side, which is the general audience one, I got into by sheer accident. I was, all the best things happened that way. I was asked... I mean, literally, you could walk out of here in 10 minutes, bump into somebody accidentally, next you'll be married for 50 years. And that's how life happens. Anyway, I am looking for something to do. And a man who's an editor at Archaeology magazine wrote to me and said, have you thought of writing a story on Giovanni Belzoni? Do you know who he is? I do because of my pre-research on you. However, I would not have known otherwise. No. But he was a tomb raider in Egypt. And a circus strongman originally. Oh, that was it. No, he really was. Really? A very good one. And then he became a tomb robber, and then he died trying to find the source of the Niger, I think, when he was young. He huge. Had a charming accident, accident, and a very devoted wife who lived a long time. Anyway, I said, well, no, because somebody's just written one, and a very good one, too. Um... And I just casually, and I put at the end, I love you, I put, well, of course we could think of a um, book on the history of Egyptian tomb robbing. And you may not believe this, but three days later, I got a first-class letter with a contract to do it. Wow. And the book... They got that over to you quickly. <laughs> they, in those days, were desperate for books. They Not now, it's quite an opposite. Larger because of self-publishing. Anyway... The book finally emerged with the title The Rape of the Nile. And I got a call from the editor, editor one morning and said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He said, you've got a two-page review in Time magazine. And we had. Books sold in ten languages. How did that make you feel? Shocked? I was amazed. But then I went out and became a trade writer. And I've written a lot of trade books. Uh, the most significant of which probably are books that I wrote most of them ten years ago on climate. I wrote a book called The Little Ice Age and I wrote a book called The Long Summer about the warm-up. I wrote a book on the attacking ocean. Um, and then I dabbled in various things, among them a book called Fish on Friday, which was great fun to write, which is a book on fisheries. Then I wrote a history of fisheries for University of Yale University Press. So I, I've got around, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Fisheries around the world. It was, a, it was the archaeology of fish fishing. It's called fishing. Uh, very well received, oddly enough. And in fact, I'm giving a keynote to the National Fisheries Association in October, uh, remotely. But the other thing this does is it opens up all sorts of opportunities. You know, I've gone around the world in a privately chartered 757 lecturing at the major sites around the world I've lectured on cruise ships I've lectured all over I've been to Australia three times and New Zealand twice and China 
No, I've got a lot. It's been it's been great because I really am. I think at this point a, a kind of global archaeologist. I think that's how all archaeologists should be, though. Yes. I'm, as, you know, as I'm applying to graduate school, I can people. Oh, well, what area of the world? Do you exactly. And I kind of, you know, I had a meeting with someone the other day, and I said, you know, I don't know yet. I'm not closed off to anywhere. I think there's a lot to be learned, and I wouldn't turn down an opportunity anywhere, really, unless it was I had, you know, some other. Talk to care to uh, Danielle about it. Mm-hmm. In very serious terms, and I'm going to tell her I've told you to do that. Of course, she knows, and she knows people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and tell her you want to be global. I mean, that's the way. Yeah. Uh, also, be careful to look for jobs outside academia. Oh yes, uh, academia is not the goal. Good. <laughs> In the slightest. <laughs> for that, I raise my hat. Yes. No, I mean. You've I, made my day. Yes, I think what. Does that more part community college is really fascinating as well because he gets to take community college students into the field, which I think is uh, such a rarity. And he gets to teach lots of different subjects within archaeology without the necessary like overhead of he is he, he I I adore that man, he's so good. I lectured for him down there once, oh, you did. Oh, so five years ago, maybe, but uh, no, um, go on, you've made my day, thank you. Because there were lots of opportunities coming. Yes. And it really is. Um, life is what you make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what really interests me is disaster research, whether it's humanitarian crises or natural disasters, and particularly the Montecito Project, to help further cement that that was what I wanted to Talk do. to Daniel. Yes. I talk to her daily. Well, make sure that you have a serious conversation with her about this. I will. Because she's damn good. She talks a lot, she but is. she's damn good. She's, she's so smart. No, she's frighteningly smart. I think she's almost too smart, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, because the one thing that's very interesting is happening in archaeology. It's just beginning. A penny is dropping where... This subject's got more and more narrow and specialised, and, and it's full of, I hate to say this, but I don't mean it this way, people who've become very comfortable in beautiful little niches where maybe eight people read them and they publish in American antiquity and become professors. Yep. And there are only eight other people that can really tell... Correct. The diff- you know, is, is this pushing the boundaries? Is this just a repetition of what you said because peer reviewing peer reviewing very often is those eight people yeah but a few people I read an article in American Archaeology a couple of days ago where somebody is saying well look hey archaeology is about big issues yes it is and it's about the lessons that we've learned correct my friend Nadia and I wrote a book two years ago called Bigger Than History. It's a short little book by Timson Hudson published it, which is exactly about all these issues. Has it been ignored? Yes. Has it been reviewed? No. But it's got gender, diversity, nationalism, all these big issues. And we make the point is that archaeology covers an enormous period of time, far longer than history. Only geology beats it. And this is its fascination and its relevance, partly. And there's a huge lot of 
what I would describe, I hate to say this, and I'm going to say it, intellectual masturbation about what archaeology is supposed to be doing. And it is just that, it is froth. Because what an awful lot of them don't seem to allies all well having these theoretical ideas and talking about oh we must do more this and do that go and do it damn it the most promising approach though well is based which we put in the book and which is true is that everything all of us are stakeholders which makes working in communities black native American whatever you like really one of the cutting edges that is beginning to move but the problem is to get really good people into it there are a few in the southwest but it's um, that to me is one of the cutting edges Um, and it's true nationally and internationally and the other thing which I find distressing is that very few archaeologists maybe I'm biased say okay I'm going to go and work for the sake of argument in central Tanzania to look at X. What do they do? They become Mayanists. Too many of them. You've really got to be bold and have an original idea. Um, It's hard. Uh, I'm curious, your time that you spent speaking with the African public, what was that like? Because I know you said it was important for you and your uh, mental It was really well. Engaged. There were two sides to this. One was talking. I did that at schools and so on. They were always receptive, um, and you didn't talk down to them either because they looked at the stuff and they knew what it was. Because yeah, they knew it was their history. Correct. Well, especially in Africa, you have such a people staying in one area. Yes, there's migrations out, but the African history itself, you know... It's continuity. Oh, yeah. Now, the other thing that was fascinating was I was persuaded by Oxford University Press in Nairobi, and they they have a branch there, to edit a short history of Zambia to coincide with independence. And we put together the early archaeology, the outer age archaeology, oral history, and we wait that up to now. And I thought nothing more of it. It was published. I got a call from the publisher saying, we're paying for you to come to Lusaka, which is the capital. I said, why? Uh, he said, the president is running a reception for you. Kaunda. Kenneth Kaunda. And he got up and he said, holding the book, for the first time we have a history on paper. And he burst into tears. He was so excited. That made everything worth it. Uh, that's what it's all about. Um, archaeology is important if 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 you don't yak about public outreach and you do it properly and the the communities that you're working yes and the first thing you have to do is forget about what your colleagues think which is an outrageous statement but it's true because they will tell you they're wrong you're wrong to which you say okay put me right some years ago I was commissioned to write a archaeology of California a book called Before California, which I wrote. Basically, a lot of the archaeology in this country is concerned with watersheds and villages, and each one is its own fiefdom to some degree. This is not totally true. It's much less true than it was. Um, And boy, this book was hard to write because of this. 
So at the beginning of the book, I said, it may surprise you in the preface that this book is written by a non-California specialist. And people are saying, why wasn't I asked to write this? And I said, to which response? My response was, go ahead and write it, because we need it. And some of them have, but they're not really good books. But you know, it, it really, you've just got to stand and look people in the face. I think anything you do with the public is worth it. But it's not a conventional career, and it is very tough. It is. But you're a tough lady, so I'm not worried. The most critical thing of all, in some ways, beyond being able to write, is to be able to speak in public really well, without notes. Yes, and that's why your nine-minute presentations, while, yes, some students it was maybe very difficult for it, ultimately, I'm sure it served them extremely practically later. I had a... A lot of students who the first half midterm absolutely screwed up. But my God, the second one. Because I would sit down and say, this is what was wrong, and they loved it. And I had one student, and this is not to go in your podcast, because she's private. A student I'm very fond of, who went off and got a job in the Galita Daily Paper, which it used to be, a weekly paper. And she was in the circulation department. And about she graduated, and about a year later, I got a call from her and said, I said, Jan, how are you? And she said, well, I'm calling from the Oakland Tribune, which, of course, is a fairly major newspaper in its day. And I said, why are you calling me? Do you want a story? And she said, no, I just wanted to tell you that I got a job as the manager of circulation for the Oakland Tribune because I spoke well in public. Thank you. I cried, but someone would tell you that, you know? But that's what teaching is about. It is. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you have had many, many students throughout the years that have had similar experiences. I hope so. Well, I've had nuttos too, but that's another story. I find the hardest thing about being a professor is being on, Mm -hmm. because I'm basically a fairly private man, and I like it that way. How did you find your balance? Was it uh, once you left campus, you're off? Oh no, oh no, I've always said that. I learned how to sail when I was eight in England. I was in Dorset and in the southwest, which is gorgeous. Is that where you were born? Uh, I was born in Birmingham, actually, and adopted when I was a few days old by my parents who lived in London and this place called Lyme Regis in Dorset. <clears throat> my father, of all things, was a publisher. Um, he and my mother were engaged through War One, and he lost a leg on the Somme and they survived two world wars I don't know how they did it They're, they were lovely my father was a lovely man my mother was okay but you know she was a harder person anyway um, the debt I owe them is enormous what was I going to say I've forgotten one that was important. My, my, I feel like my brain sometimes. Oh, I know, I know what it was. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, uh, when I came here, I decided it was time I took sailing seriously because I'd always wanted to do it. And so this is a great place to do it. It is indeed. I bought a boat here and went sailing to the islands and discovered I there was no cruising guide. So I spent the next 10 years on and off writing it. 
and that's a Bible. People use it. And it doesn't make any money, but it's a Bible. Um, and I developed a sideline as a yachting journalist. I had a, a close friend who was the editor of a sailing magazine in Wisconsin, of all places, on the Great Lakes. Oh, uh, I've never yes. About that. No, it's not good sailing. It's a vicious, vicious piece of water. Anyway, um, I wrote a lot of articles for her, and I also wrote boat tests. You know how you have to, and I tested people's three hundred thousand dollar dreams. I would take them out for a couple of hours and have all the fun and other maintenance. Yeah. And I did that for God about fifteen years, and I got bored with it and gave it up. I, I'm a great believer that life has chapters. And my chapter, that chapter ended. And in fact, I then sold my boats and joined a co-op yacht club in Channel Islands in Oxnard, which was one of the greatest bargains you can imagine because you can get unlimited sailing in 22-footers for modest sums of money. And I cut one guy in Ohio and one down in Thousand Oaks. I used to sail with about once a week. But in August, I said... No, I'm not nimble on deck anymore. So it's time to give up. So that chapter went in. Any regrets? No, I had a good time. So I've been a sailor all my life. That's one thing. I now have another job, which isn't a job. I do it. I have a friend who's a car broker. Let's say you wanted to buy a middle-level SUV. I would send you to him, and he would say, Okay, do you want used or new? Let's say you wanted new. He'd say, fine. Uh, I would recommend you look, and he would talk to you about what you wanted. I would look at X, Y, and Z, and he would arrange a test drive and then buy it for you with no bargaining, cheaper than you would otherwise get it. He also does pre-owned, but you walk in and say, I want a Honda CRV with 10,000 miles, uh, maybe three years old. He'll find you one, and he'll get you the color and everything. So I drive his car, his used cars, and write a little commentary for his website uh, things actually are not very busy at the moment because of the Covid but I've driven everything, I've driven Rolls's, Bentley's, Ferrari's I think Volvo is very high uh, if I had the money a Bentley convertible is pretty cool uh, no I don't really, I can't afford to um, but I can give you a, a, a capsule portrait of the any car on the market. He does, he begins at BMW and goes up, and does okay. He's good. I love my Jeep. You have a Jeep. You're a massive manly woman, or a womanly woman. Yes, I, I feel like it's a it's my Oregon roots, and also I really wanted a truck, but practically I needed a bit more space than that, and uh, my Jeep in particular is very high off the ground and has lots of it's basically like driving a truck, but that has space. Of I should imagine it intimidates young men. I don't know if anyone's ever brought that up, but if so, they keep it to themselves. They probably I did shame. go on a date with someone one time, and they pulled up and had the exact same car, same gear, same color, everything. And I was like, I got in the passenger seat, and I'm so not used to being in the passenger seat. And it wasn't my car, it was slightly different. Felt very How long did that relationship last? Uh, one date. <laughs> No, but it's fascinating. Um, no, I've, I've had a lot of different things I, I've done. It's been a good life. I can't complain. I bicycle a lot. I used to ride two-wheelers. 
And then about 10 years ago, I gave up and got on the recumbents because my doctor said, look, if you fall, you're going to be screwed. And so I went on the recumbents. And then I started having trouble getting up hills. So now I have an electric assist recumbent, which I've had for five years. And it's partially off-road. It's kind of heavy. So I finally said, I called up the guy. They built in North Carolina, a small factory, really nice people. And I said, look, I think it's time I moved on. Do you have a cheaper version of this? These are high-end. And he said, no, but I suggest you get a thing which is called a Tie Fly 26. And I said, what the Hades is that? And he said, well, they're built on the Czech Republic. And I gulped. And he said, they are the best tricycles in the world. Titanium, so he went on. And he said, what I suggest we do is buy one for you, and then we'll electrify it. The factory actually does as well. So my uh, high-speed tricycle, new one, is now about three-quarters of the way across the Atlantic. And it will go there. They'll do it and then send it down. So I'll get it probably in October, uh, early November. And then what I do, they send to me in a crate. I put my old one in the crate, ship it back, and they sell it for 10000 bucks, which is only $2,000 more than I paid for it. Less, less, no less, less. There was such a there's such a demand for them, you know. There was a bug snacking on my No, but you'd have cats and get fleas. But um, anyway, um, so that's my other passion. I ride about a hundred miles a week. That's interesting. My my father was um, a cyclist. He's now retired, but he was invited to the Olympic trials at 18 and loves road racing. But obviously, that's quite a bit different. Does Leslie join you when you go? This is me. She uh, is totally into bees and animals. and She's busy. And she looks after the property. I'm not allowed to touch the garden on pain of death. <laughs> Which is fair enough. She knows what she's doing. So I'm busy. I'm, I'm comfortably busy. I'm deliberately not. The next couple of weeks are very busy indeed. But, uh, yeah, so. well, I'm curious about your impressions of the Channel Islands. And I know you've also done some sea hikes sea kayaking in addition to the sailing the people that don't live here don't get to know the, the beauty of the ocean where we live I mean even just going out I've had the opportunity to sail in Ventura oh you know just seeing dolphins right right there seeing seals you know even I mean went on a boat to the Channel Islands once and saw a pressure shark just right off the boat oh they're around they it's it's a gorgeous place it is if you go ashore and get inland it really is like California 100 years ago. And in fact, the Nature Conservancy and the Park Service and those people, and the guy who previously owned it, who was a guy called Carrie Stanton, who was a character, um, for some reason he liked me, uh, really looked after it. So it's amazingly unspoiled, and you can't, there were no marinas over there, you have to anchor and so on. And long may it stay like that. It has a weather which is slightly different from here, with more wind out there. And uh, getting caught out there in 45 knots of wind is not fun. I have done it. But the passage over is lovely if you get a chance. And lots of marine life. Oh, a lot. Surprising amount even now. Uh, but I've sailed all the way up to San Francisco. Sailing a boat under sail under the Golden Gate is really something. I, I can only imagine. That sounds incredible. 
However, I mean, even rougher conditions up there in, in the... That can be very not, bumpy. Yeah, yeah, in a not, not perfect day. But the great thing is if you're going in, the wind's behind you, so oh. that helps. No, no, I did a lot of that. I've sailed all over the world. I've chartered boats. I've sailed across the Atlantic. I've sailed in Scandinavia, which I love, Europe, Mediterranean. I sail, I've actually visited several places mentioned by Homer in my boat. Oh, yeah. Um, Make the most of your life, dear. Yes. I've already been to 11 countries, so I'm on a good path. I love traveling. Although, I do have to say the pandemic has given me an equal appreciation for an at-home time and family time, which I think is important. I didn't grow up with a lot of family close by, so I think my appreciation for that have you been to Australia and New Zealand? I have not. Go. Yes. Especially New Zealand. Have you been to China? I have not, but I've been to Japan. That's a fascinating place. Incredible place. Mm -hmm. I mean, even just like having the Tokyo Olympics just there made me so think about it so much and want to go back. I definitely, definitely need to make that a priority. <laughs> we, it was an exchange program that I was on, and so we spent a week in Tokyo in a hotel, and then we spent a week in a in a in Hokkaido in a small fishing town with a family and that was just that made you think didn't yes. it and just seeing how they use everything and seeing how they're so generous you cannot in Japan if you say that something looks nice they will give it to you tell me did you get to Kyoto no I didn't they one of the adults took a train and lost kids were in the city I was um only 12 at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a high-speed train out to Kyoto, and a friend of mine who lives and works in Japan took me to the station to get the ticket. And he went, and they were, he's fluent. They were okay. going, and we finished, and I handed over the money, and the ticket collector with a beautiful shitty grin said, I've given you a, in perfect English, I've given you a seat so you can see Mount Shuji, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> They're incredibly kind people. They are. The Chinese are different. They're I was going to ask, what were your experiences like in China? China, it's very energetic. Basically, it's friendly. Um, I'd imagine a bit more reserved, perhaps. Some people are, some people aren't. I was there at an archaeological congress, which was filled with gentlemen with red ties in suits, you know. You're never far away from the state. But it's a fascinating place to go. And I was very lucky to get a room in one of the palaces in the old courtyard of Beijing, you know, whatever they call it. That's fascinating. That's so cool. And the pool, the parks there were full of places where people were doing ballroom dancing, which apparently was big there. Outside? Yeah. No, I've been to a lot of places. I've kind of lost my appetite for travel at the moment, but I'll pick it up again. I'm getting older. And I mean, this pandemic has... Oh, that's... We, my wife is paranoid about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all need a decent amount of paranoia about it. I think that's what's going to keep those of us... Is safe. the Fun Palace going to be open? The Fun Palace is going to be open. Um, we actually start classes in... Today is Sunday. Four days. Really? Yeah. Or three days, because they start Wednesday. Mm. The last year here... Pretty sad about it. I keep doing the lagoon loop 
because I live just right next to campus this year, which is lovely because I also work on campus. And um, what do you do on I do campus? Move, I work at the post office. Oh, are you a post office employee I am. of the government? No, no, no. Because our post office is um, privately contracted. Yeah. yeah. However, it is nice because I work for a federal institution. I hardly get any taxes taken out of my paycheck. What did your father do? He, um, both my parents are teachers. My dad teaches health and science, and my mom is a special education teacher. Are they together? No. no. My mom lives here, my dad lives in Oregon. I, a, uh, special education is an amazingly difficult thing. She is so incredibly gifted. She's worked with almost all ages, all different skill levels, from people just with learning disabilities to severely physically to mentally disabled students, and she is incredible. I would love to hear about your excavations at Star Car. I know that was while you were asking. I wasn't. I never excavated at Star Car. Oh. I visited it, and I am very familiar with the artifacts. It was dug in 1948 on an absolute shoestring, and they re-dug it, and I know the people who re-dug it, so I'm pretty familiar with the stuff, but I never actually worked there. My apologies, I read that wrong. Oh, in, um, you read it wrong, yeah. yeah. No, I, I have a very intimate knowledge. I was brought up on it, um, and it was an amazing excavation for the time. With Graham Clark was... At his height, was an amazing man. He terrified people. What are some of your fondest memories from excavation, perhaps? Excavation? Sites, yeah, sites that you didn't... Enjoy. Giving it up. <laughs> no. Uh, fondest? I know for me, the first time I went into an archaeological site, I truly thought it was fake. <laughs> it was half excavated, and I just for the first ten minutes was like, there's no way that this, this is... There's a Roman basilica sticking out six inches from the ground, like what? Oh, well, no. You see, what I was digging were basically middens. Mm. And the African villages I were, uh, excavated were um, basically animal bones, potsherds, odd metal fragments, occasionally a human skeleton, and occasional hut floors, which were made of baked clay. I wouldn't describe it as spectacular. There was a site I dug which had very good waterlogged presentation, present, uh, preservation, which was a sand bushman, the old-fashioned word, hunter-gatherer site of about 3,000 years ago. And the preservation there was extraordinary. We found wooden digging sticks and things like that. Uh, that was very memorable. Um, I really didn't have the patience. The most extraordinary site I was involved with, which I didn't actually dig that part of it myself, was a place called Ngombia Lady, which is known as the place where the cows slept, down in the middle Zambezi Valley, which is really horrible, it's really hot, where in putting in a water storage tank, the contractors found nine gold-adorned burials of traders who had traded copper and other things uh, for Indian Ocean beads and textiles and the preservation was really remarkable. That was excavated because I was in Cape Town at the time by a guy called Jim Chaplin who was 
the inspector of monuments for what was there in Northern Rhodesia, and he did as an amazing job of excavating them. I went back to try and find out more about the context of the site. And I screwed it up, I got the dating all wrong. Because, and partly now with Bayesian statistics and all that stuff, we do now know it was about three centuries later than what I'm doing. But that's all part of the game. But that was an extraordinary site, but to work it was horrible. And we camped right close to a nest of black mamba snakes, which wasn't much fun. Yeah. Those will kill you in five minutes. Yeah, that... There I was, you know. There were lots of other things I could tell you which are not going on the podcast, so... In general, what about Africa captivated you? Because I, my, my grandmother, spent a lot of time working in Africa, and I know that she just barely even put into words like how beautiful it is there and the culture and the people and I'm curious what resonates with you from your time there about the The most important thing I brought out and yes it's gorgeous and yes the people are lovely and I got some very close African friends um, our attitudes to life to culture to other people to other races Um, and when I came over here I found that a lot of the things I was thinking about and doing with archaeology bore no resemblance to anything over here at all. Um, that was the biggest change. The legacy Africa has given me was huge. Almost all um, things connected my work, attitudes to life, this sort of thing. You know, an amazing experience. In my 20s, it was tough. Living conditions were rough in the bush. I burnt out. I did huge mileages off the road in Land Rovers. I mean, I could write you a symphony on Land Rover gearboxes. You know. yeah. uh, and when you're in your 20s and full of hormones, it's a marvelous time to do it. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't do it now. But then you have to realize that as you get older, you want to do other things. Yeah. Like raising bunnies. I don't raise bunnies. The family does. I like being happily married. And um, I've got good friends and I do things. The only time I come to campus is if I'm going to the Learning Resources Department, which is run by a very close friend of mine, and I just go and have coffee with him and we socialize. I go to the library occasionally, but now with the li- online, it's mm-hmm. less and less and less. So my contacts with the department, are, except for Danielle, are basically zero. They've never asked me to come back, so that's fine. How does it feel being on campus today? Neutral. Neutral. It's a beautiful day. I bought the sun for you. Yes, you did. No, I mean, it really, uh, this building is a disaster because basically you've got a row of prison cells here. Nobody talks to each other. That's mm-hmm. one of the problems. Um, I kind of divorced myself from the university when I retired because I felt that's a chapter that's ended. If I come on campus, it's interesting I get lost (laughs) but it's okay I'm curious what has kept you motivated in this past let's say 10 years to keep producing scholarship and to keep producing books I mean you definitely don't have to your legacy has been cemented books books and also ideas I mean I've got interesting stuff Mm -hmm. Um, you've just got more to say you've got more to say that's why you haven't stopped yes so far something comes up things come across my desk you yes know? and you're open to the opportunities you must be
like doing a, a, a podcast with you. I'm so I'm so glad that you agreed, and you said that people think you're dead, which is just very not true. Oh, they do. You go to the SAA meetings, and people say to me, "Oh, I thought you were dead." That's happened several times. <laughs> I want to know why they would say that because that's quite rude. I let people I know, oh, vaguely, okay. you know, well, no, that's no, okay. no, but it is. They they <laughs> said, "Oh, you're always busy," and I said, "Well, I still am, but it's all books and anything else." Um, Largely because that's what uh, comes along. I do a lot of work for Nadia's magazine. I write features for her, but I don't get paid. I do it as a volunteer thing. You see, the thing is, I'm an independent scholar, and I have to be financially independent. You don't get grants for doing stuff for the public. No, you don't. No. So you have to devise things. So it's a lot of my life is spent preserving my list of books and whatever. Question for you is: Is there any advice that you would like to pass on to our listeners who may also be pursuing their passions or in the midst of their careers looking to advance? You do ask a difficult question. That's a hard one. Um, I think if you, I think the most important thing is to do something which you really want to do, and the other thing, because you're unusual, is that. Once you get out of here, use considerable energy to explore opportunities. Take a job you don't like it, move. Uh, the opportunities are open-ended if you're good enough. And the other thing you've got to get no illusions about is what you're good at and what you're bad at. That is terribly important. If you're no good at figures, don't become an accountant, for example. If you have a problem with people, don't become a professor and don't become a doctor. That's the sort of elementary level. Um, a lot of people leave and go to the Peace Corps. I don't see the point of it. I don't think you learn much from it, really. Except you That's get my exposed. Dream, actually. Really? There's a lot of people. She didn't do it, though. She also wanted to be an archaeologist when she was younger. Everybody does. Um, I mean, I've got students I know, former students, and I, I even have one who's an engine driver. He loves it. Um, I've got students who are in jail, you know, everything, drugs. You name it, I've had them. Um, people in the military. Um, a small class, right? This mustn't go in the book either. Well, I had a, a guy who was a ranger, and he bought in his weaponry. That was fascinating. And I said, is it loaded? And he said, this one is. I took off the safety catch and pulled it out. Oh, no, you meet people who will never become archaeologists, which is good. Um, <clears throat> I think you've just got to find what you're comfortable with. And the other most important thing is very early on, decide where you want to live when you're 50. Yeah. And that's important. I was very lucky to get here when I did. No, but you know, I did. And... As far as marriage is concerned, if in doubt, don't. There's no stigma these days. I think that's a great piece of advice. Well, I that's public advice. <laughs> but no, really, the, uh, I find students have changed very little. It's a, you, you, the period you're at is very difficult where you're trying to make decisions. A lot of the time you just fall into things. I think you need to tell people, 
meet lots of people and realize that the big decisions in life will just happen most of the time and they do well thank you for your time I really enjoyed you. I have two if I may say two things yes one you are an incredibly nice person thank you. and I'm old enough I can say it you thank really you. are number two you have a real gift for this don't throw it away